Welcome to the MCG Podcast Radio Network. Today is Thursday, November 9th, 2017. My name is Snapper Plone. I am a Digital Marketing Manager with MCG Health in Seattle, Washington, and I am joined by Ben Klein from Invariant, a government relations firm that works with MCG on healthcare policy in Washington, D.C. So welcome, Ben, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So let's start off uh, with a follow-up from our previous podcast, which was on the national opioid crisis. So about two weeks ago, President Trump finally made an official announcement directing the Department of Health and Human Services to declare the opioid crisis a public health emergency. Now, this is actually different from a national emergency, which can be invoked uh, by using the Stafford Act. Can you explain to our listeners who might not be familiar with the legislation how those designations are different? Sure, I would be happy to. So it took a few months after the president indicated this was something he would he would do for him to actually act. And you're right, there are two different ways you can declare a national emergency. The way that most people are familiar under the Stafford Act, that's usually the declaration that's used for natural disasters like the recent hurricanes. Um, it's typically not used for long-term events and obviously there's an expectation that the opioids crisis, this is gonna be a long-term event, a long-term crisis. And they've decided to use the Public Health Service Act, um, which does give the administration uh, more flexibility. There's not a lot of funding in the Public Health Service Act. In fact, there's only $57,000 left in the Public Health Emergency Fund, and you heard that right, $57,000, not million or billion. Uh, so it certainly doesn't provide a lot of money at this point, but it does provide uh, a good deal of flexibility that, that should help in the short term. And the declaration is intended to last for 90 days, but they've indicated that it will likely be extended and it can be extended as long as needed. And so we, we expect this declaration will remain uh, for a long period of time. So what does the president's actual proclamation mean as far as support for US healthcare, uh, the US healthcare sector in addressing this issue? Uh, for example, I've heard one thing that the president's action might do is expand the use of telemedicine, uh, which could be helpful in opioid-stricken areas uh, like Appalachia, where there are fewer healthcare providers in rural areas. Um, are there any other practical benefits that could stem from his announcement? So that's definitely the big one. The telemedicine benefit is key. And as you mentioned, I mean, the opioid crisis, while it's certainly a national crisis, it's hitting rural areas particularly hard. And in some of these rural communities like West Virginia, they don't have access to enough clinicians to provide treatment. And so expanding the use of telemedicine to provide individuals access to treatment, to provide individuals access to care will certainly help. They do allow states some, some additional flexibility. So for example, states can repurpose some of their existing federal dollars to put towards the opioids crisis. Um, the Department of Health and Human Services can also use this to expedite hiring more people to actually get more people on the ground to help states respond. So it's certainly a step in the right direction, um, but not going as far as some, some would like to see. Is there still bipartisan legislation in play uh, to address this problem? And is there any chance it will pass by the end of the year? Sure, it's a good question. There's certainly bipartisan support to address the opioids crisis. There, at this point, there's not consensus around one proposal. I think the most likely outcome will be uh, additional federal funding, possibly in December as part of an end-of-the-year funding bill. You know, that, that's something there seems to be interest in actually putting some dollars behind what the administration announced and, and helping give states additional resources to respond to the crisis. And it could come in the form of grants to states 
The government could also, you know, on a temporary basis adjust the federal Medicaid match, uh, which would, you know, is a good way of pushing money directly to states right away to help respond to the crisis, whether it would be used for treatment prevention, uh, all of the various uh, needs that are out there. And I, so I, I do think there's a good chance we'll see that at the end of the year. Well, let's change gears a little bit. Uh, there was some recent positive news for healthcare providers in the form of the Chronic Care Act of 2017, uh, which unanimously passed the Senate in September. Um, can you tell us what was in that bill and how it's going to help patients with chronic conditions? Sure. This legislation has been a long time coming. It's been uh, uh, the result of a bipartisan collaboration, uh, particularly among members of the Senate Finance Committee. It really includes a host of provisions, all designed to improve the treatment of Medicare beneficiaries who have one or more chronic illnesses, which are certainly the big cost driver when you look at Medicare expenditures. It's, it's the chronic diseases that are really um, driving up the cost of the Medicare program. Bill does a number of things. Some of the provisions that uh, I think are, are most, uh, most often highlighted would allow telehealth services to be used for end-stage renal disease treatment, uh, for, for stroke evaluation, also expanding the use of telehealth under Medicare Advantage. Um, the, the bill would also give Medicare Advantage plans more flexibility to offer specific benefits to individuals with chronic diseases uh, versus having to offer a uniform benefit package to all of the uh, participants in, in an MA program. So that's certainly something that you know, I think plans are, are eager to, to try to move forward with and to try to drive down some of those costs by coming up with benefits specifically designed for that population. Uh, the bill would also extend a number of programs that are set to expire, things like the Independence at Home program, which allows seniors who have multiple chronic illnesses to receive specialized care at home from a team of healthcare providers versus having to uh, go to hospital care or, or institution care. So there's a lot of discussion, or at least that I've heard, about how this chronic care bill um, could be a boon for ACOs, which are accountable care organizations, for those people who don't know. Can you speak a little to that and talk about what kinds of support it might offer for those institutions? Sure. So the bill would give ACOs more flexibility in, in I think, two significant ways. One, ACOs would be able to use their own money to help patients that are assigned to the ACO afford primary care services that are really needed to manage chronic conditions. It would also allow ACOs or give ACOs increased financial predictability. So when patients get assigned, it would always be on a prospective basis at the start of a performance year rather than being assigned in the middle of the year. And you know that really allows ACOs more time to drive an impact, uh, which is obviously important for their uh, reimbursement structure. So I think you know, certainly there are some key aspects in here for, for ACOs. Well, now that that bill, which passed the Senate, has moved on to the House of Representatives, do you anticipate a lot of changes to it? Um, do you think because of the, you know, the uniform passage in the Senate, do you think we can expect a pretty clean bill? Um, and also, do you think that will happen before the congressional holiday break? Sure, good question. You know, I think there's a lot of support for this bill on, on, in the House. There, there are a number of smaller bills that have been introduced in the House that touch on various aspects of this. I do think that rather than take up and pass the Senate bill, the House is going to want to put their own imprint on this legislation, and I think the House is in the process of deciding whether they will um, group a number of the individual proposals together and try to advance something, or whether they would you know, try to go to conference with the Senate with the proposals that have already passed the House. And you know, I think part of this um, is, is politics more than, than policy. 
the House leadership is uh, has been frustrated that you know literally hundreds of bills across a variety of subjects have cleared the House and not seen light of day in the Senate. And so I think that they're going to be hesitant to just take up and move a Senate bill. Um, you know, so that, that being the case, I think it's unlikely we'll see this happen before they adjourn at the end of the year. There's also a lot on Congress's plate. We're in the middle of a, of a tax reform debate. They still have to do an end-of-the-year funding bill, address a bunch of Medicare provisions that are set to expire. So I think there's a lot uh, on the plate. Um, which may end up pushing this into next year. But I do think we will see action on this subject. You know, this is a bipartisan issue. Um, it's just going to take some time for the House to, to decide how to proceed. And like I said, they're going to want to put their own imprint on this as it moves forward. As many healthcare uh, professionals already know, the Republicans were unable to repeal and replace Obamacare this year. And I know that uh, Senator Patty Murray, a Democrat from Washington, and Senator Lamar Alexander, a Republican from Tennessee, had generated some enthusiasm for a bipartisan bill that may help improve the Affordable Care Act. And in fact, their proposal had 24 co-sponsors um, in the Senate. Uh, I think it was 12 Republicans and 12 Democrats, so you know, pretty even there. Um, and it's really rare to see true bipartisanship these days, but what's their bill going to do and can it realistically pass a Republican House as well as the president's desk? Sure. So starting with what it would do, it would provide funding for the cost share reduction payments that are due to the health insurance plans. And this um, is really critical to provide stabilization in the individual market and help you know, address premiums that have, have risen considerably since these payments have, have stopped or since the administration has stopped making these payments. It would also provide states more flexibility um, and the ability to uh, design programs and, and have those programs considered in a more timely basis by, uh, by CMS. Um, I think at the, at the end of the day, there is a good chance we'll see, we'll see action here. Um, part of the, the challenge, you know, the administration has been all over the map on this proposal. Uh, they've applauded uh, the work of Alexander Murray, but they've also been critical uh, that it doesn't go far enough to you know, repeal aspects of Obamacare that the administration has raised concerns with. I think at the end of the day, it's likely that this proposal will be added into some package at the end of the year. It's hard to see it moving on its own because it would require 60 votes in the Senate, which is a pretty high threshold these days. Um, but if it were added into you know, an end-of-the-year funding bill, uh, it might be something we could see move forward. The House has not been as supportive uh, of, of this as the Senate, and so that's also a complication. But if I had to make a bet, I think there's a good chance this, this bill will get done at the end of the year. And you know, speaking of the House, they recently passed um, a reauthorization of the Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, which most people know it as, um, which supplies low-cost health care coverage to children and some pregnant women in families that earn too much money to qualify for Medicaid. And the reauthorization bill has some controversy attached to it as it's partially funded by raising certain Medicare premiums and shortening the grace period that ACA enrollees can pay for their exchange plan. I think it shortens it from 90 days to like 30 days. So what's the likelihood uh, this version will make it through the Senate uh, with those types of provisions intact? Sure. I think it's hard to see the House bill moving in the Senate as it stands today. I do think at the end of the day there will be an agreement on CHIP, this has always been a bipartisan program, and you know I, I think at the end of the day the support will be there. Um, several states are close to to running out of money, 
I do think it will be another item that could go into an end-of-the-year package. Are there any other major um, legislative endeavors in the works that affect healthcare, you know, broadly or specifically? Can you tell us a little bit about them if there are? Sure. So I'd say the the debate on Obamacare and aspects of Obamacare will will continue. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, right now uh, Congress is trying to advance tax reform, and we've already seen healthcare uh, sort of encroach into that debate with the president and some members of Congress calling for the repeal of the individual mandate as part of the tax reform exercise. Um, you know, the, repealing the individual mandate would save a considerable amount of money, and as Congress looks at ways to reduce the corporate rate, to reduce the individual rate, uh, they are desperate for revenue, and that's certainly one pot that remains out there. So far, uh, we have not seen it actually added to, to the bill. The House Ways and Means Committee uh, is now in their fourth day of marking up the legislation, and then it will proceed to the House floor. Uh, so at this point, it's not in the bill, but it's certainly in the mix and, and could get added as the, as the debate proceeds. The administration has also talked about doing another executive order around the individual mandate and potentially addressing other aspects of Obamacare. So I, I, I don't think this issue is going to go away anytime soon. Um, meanwhile, you may have seen, you know, it is open enrollment, and so far the numbers are, are looking pretty good. And, and the enrollment so far uh, is already, you know, way above where it would typically be uh, at this point during previous open enrollment periods. And so for whatever reason, um, more and more individuals are entering the market. Um, it could be that, you know, there, there's the, the long-term uh, uncertainty surrounding Obamacare is driving people to make the decision in the short term, but whatever whatever the reason, we are seeing good open enrollment numbers, which you know will will also continue to to fuel the debate as Congress goes forward. Well, thank you for all that information, Ben, and thank you for covering these topics with us today, and for keeping us up to date on what's going on in Capitol Hill with healthcare policy. As a note for our listeners, MCG Care guidelines and software are the gold standard in the healthcare industry. Eight of the largest U.S. health plans and over 1,700 hospitals use our evidence-based content and software solutions to increase the efficiency of healthcare delivery and to improve the patient journey. MCG also integrates with nearly all the leading EMR platforms and is utilized by government-contracted entities such as MACs, RACs, and BFCC QIOs to ensure tax dollars are being used to deliver quality care. If you'd like to learn more about us or find out more about our guidelines and software solutions, visit our website at www.mcg.com and click Contact Us, or you can call 1-888-464-4746. Thank you for joining us today.